The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast, a podcast that is all about wildlife. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm a naturalist by trade. If you want to know about me and my background, you can check out my first episode, Who is the Nagging Naturalist? My opinions are my own, and I do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute that's mentioned on my podcast. As some of you know, I am back from a roughly two-month hiatus after I took a break from the podcast at the beginning of November. I had a lot on my plate at the time with school. I was taking several classes, and I was just really needing a break, especially with the holidays coming up. So I took a hiatus, and actually I had a lot of fun because for anybody who follows me on Twitter, you may have seen my Christmas content which was uh, 25 days of Christmas, Christmas being all about crustaceans. <laughs> and it was interesting for me because I usually when I post content, I do try my best to post my own pictures. I know on Instagram I've reposted from others, but I'm always very careful to try to credit people when I use others' photography or artwork. But I, I usually try to use my own. So it was a lot of fun trying to dredge up 25 different species of crustaceans. I wasn't even sure if I had 25 species of crustaceans in my in my pictures, but lo and behold, I definitely did. In fact, I had more than 25 species. I probably have something closer to at least 40 species of crustaceans in my personal photography, and I had a lot of fun posting and talking about these species throughout the month. So if, if you don't follow me on social media, that's fine. If you do follow me on social media... I know that I don't have too many people on Facebook and Instagram. Most of my followers are on Twitter, and I will tell people if you follow me elsewhere but you don't follow me on Twitter and you have a Twitter, that's where you're going to see most of my content. I live on Twitter when I'm on social media. I don't really do a whole lot on Facebook and Instagram aside from just make the occasional wildlife post or announce stuff about the podcast. So if you want to see some of my more interesting content outside of the podcast, Basically, you just need to go to Twitter. And remember, you don't need a Twitter account to actually view my content. You can't interact with me without an account. But if you want to just see things like the Christmas posts, you just look up the Nagging Naturalist on Twitter. Just putting that out there. Honestly, I don't know why I'm talking about this stuff right now. I'm going to mention all the social media at the end of the podcast anyway. Whatevs. Moving on. So... I've changed up the format for those of you who listen to anything that I put out last year. Last year was my first year podcasting. The pandemic introduced an interesting scenario for me where I suddenly had a lot of free time. I couldn't volunteer for a little while. I wasn't working. I was just doing schoolwork. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I was in between semesters. And it seemed like that was a good time for me to go ahead and launch a podcast. <laughs> So I ha haven't even reached a full year yet of podcasting. So I'm, I'm still kind of finding my way in a sense. Oh, and I should mention also uh, in December, I did a collaborative podcast with several other podcasts. And by several, I mean like 11. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure I posted it on my Twitter and Instagram or at least in an Instagram story. I probably I guess I should post that in more places. <laughs> I believe we did it in collaboration with 
the podcast called What Are You Going to Do With That? I think they were the ones hosting it, so it may be on their social media. I'll have to see if I can get the audio and stuff and post it on my other social media account so that people can see it. But that was fun. We basically just kind of chatted about things, uh, our podcasts, uh, how the year affected us, you know, what we'd like to do moving forward. And I discussed the fact that I was changing my format. So last year, I focused on an entire species for a month. And the idea behind that was I felt like, you know, doing a species every week doesn't really let people retain a lot of information about them versus talking about it for a full month and hammering away at it, you know, might lead to more retention. And it also gave me the ability to talk about the species in more ways. Like I didn't just talk about their natural history. I was able to talk about things like their evolution, the animals they're related to, uh, books that they show up in, scientific papers. A very popular one was talking about them in tabletop RPGs, namely Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, If you go through some of my old episodes, I created a lot of ways for people to incorporate them. I also had addendums for existing species in Dungeons and Dragons. So that was something that I did last year. I also did some of my first interviews and some takeovers where I let wildlife biologists and uh, other types of wildlife scientists take over my podcast and actually produce their own content to give them voice. And I did all these things. I experimented a lot. And I decided that I would move to doing species weekly because unfortunately doing species monthly means that it will take me until the end of time, basically, to cover (laughs) all the species I could possibly talk about in the podcast. And it seems like people want me to talk about more diversity versus going into more specifics about individual species. And I do still want to try to cover more specifics about them. I don't want to be just another natural history podcast. So I am still going to discuss things like the environmental, social, and economic value, and the conservation of the species. And depending on time, I may do small bonus segments or bonus episodes where I add some of the other segments that I did as separate episodes. I might keep them as small mini-sodes that I do on the side occasionally, or if there's not a lot of content for me to do in these main episodes, I might just tack them into these uh, just as a fun extra segment to do. We'll see. I'm still going to do a bit of experimenting, but the new format is basically I will be focusing on a monthly habitat. So in this way, all the species I discuss have a connection to each other by sharing these habitats. And I don't just mean a general habitat like animals that live in savannas because there are savannas around the world. There are tundras around the world. There are kelp forests around the world. When I say habitat, I mean an actual specific microhabitat. So speaking of which, this month's uh, habitat that I'm going to discuss is the sandy seafloors of the Monterey Bay Continental Shelf. So uh, off the coast of Central California, you have Monterey Bay, which is, you know, not quite an enclosed bay like you would normally think. It's actually just like somebody came up to the California coast and took a giant bite out of the side of the coast and left this U-shape. And that's Monterey Bay. It's basically just the Pacific Ocean, slightly more inside of California. (laughs) But it does connect to an estuary. Uh, The major estuary of of Monterey Bay is Elkhorn Slough. 
and it's kind of situated at the center of the bay. And where Elkhorn Slough lets out into the bay actually begins a very unique geological feature, which is the Monterey Bay uh, Submarine Canyon. This canyon actually splits down the center of Monterey Bay. It heads out into the Pacific Ocean, and it's actually pretty massive. It is, I think, the largest, technically the largest canyon in North America or on the North American continental plate. However, I need to phrase it for it to be technically true. Because at its deepest, it's twice as deep as the Grand Canyons. Like, I think its deepest point is like two miles deep, something like that. It's, it's, it's ridiculously huge. It's very wide. It's massive. It's amazing. And it's the reason why it's so cool is because the canyons start so close to the shore, it means that the deeper parts of the ocean are suddenly very accessible. And this also makes for a very unique mixture of wildlife because you have animals living in shallow uh, spaces like the continental shelf, which usually doesn't get very deep. What qualifies as the deep sea, quote unquote, is I believe you have to go past 600 meters. So anything less than 600 meters isn't quite the deep sea yet. Sometimes they go deep, but in this particular case, the uh, Monterey Bay continental shelf is not considered the deep sea. But... It does have this canyon inside of it, which is part of the deep sea. So it, it really creates this very unique habitat in that area, this very unique mixture of species. And so I'm hoping it's going to provide some really cool animals for me to talk to, to you guys about this month. So that is our theme this month, is the sandy seafloor is the type of habitat, and the specific location is the Monterey Bay continental shelf. So... I hope that all makes sense. If it doesn't, I'm sorry. <laughs> but let's go ahead and launch into this week's species, which is going to be the East Pacific red octopus, which is often just called the red octopus by people who live where its range is, which is basically the North American coast. So we're going to, of course, touch on a little bit of the natural history. So we are in the animal kingdom, and they belong to the phylum of mollusks. That means that these animals are related to snails and bivalves like um, clams and oysters. It is in the class cephalopoda, so cephalopods, so octopuses, squid, nautiluses, cuttlefish. It's in the order octopoda, which, you know, kind of seems like a given. <laughs> uh, the family is octopodidae. <laughs> And then finally, the genus slash species is octopus rubescens. So, I mean, its its name is literally red octopus. That's its actual species name. The average length is about 51 centimeters or 20 inches. And its average weight is about 100 to 150 grams or 3.5 to 5 ounces. So very, very small animal. And the reason why it is so lightweight despite its size is they don't have bones. This is an invertebrate animal. Bones weigh a lot. So when animals don't have bones, they actually tend to be pretty lightweight. So their general appearance is they're often seen with bright or deep red coloration, though they can kind of be mottled with white spite, white spites, <laughs> white spots or stripes. They can change color and be brown or whitish all over, or they can be a mixture of these three colors, the red, the brown, and the white. It all depends, but nine times out of 10, when you see a red octopus, it will actually be some kind of red. 
Their skin texture can range from smooth or it can be bumpy if they raise their papillae. So papillae are the things you see on octopuses when they suddenly camouflage and they look like kelp or rocks by raising up their skin. That's the papillae. And in particular, this species of octopus has three papillae flaps under their eyes, and this can help distinguish them from other octopus species within their range. That's considered like the, what do they call it? Birds. Field marks. That's what they call them. I blanked out for a second. Field marks. <laughs> but, but it's a distinguishing feature, and that's how most people know whether or not they're looking at a very tiny, like, giant Pacific octopus or just a red octopus. I should also mention, if you've never seen an octopus, their name actually means, well, th their class name, cephalopod, means head foot, basically. So they have this very large mantle, which looks like this giant sack of a head with two eyes at the end. And then they have eight arms. Some people mistakenly call them tentacles, but they have eight arms coming out. So it's this these long, tapered, conical arms covered in suckers. Although I'm, I'm assuming most of you have seen them, though, so... <laughs> The, the red octopus is like super generic in its appearance. There's nothing super extraordinary about the way it looks. Very like basic octopus. Its range is found along the East Pacific coast of North America, generally from central Alaska all the way down to northern Mexico. Its habitat is typically sandy seafloors like we're discussing, as well as rocky coastlines especially in kelp forests ranging from about 0 to 300 meters, which is about uh, 984 feet in depth. And they can also be found in like intertidal zones along rocky coasts too. So you can literally go tide pooling and potentially find these animals. Now, despite where they typically live, they have been found within the Monterey Bay submarine canyon. So that giant geological feature that makes for a very fascinating mixture of species also means that some species can be found in habitats where they don't normally live. And this is the case with this octopus is while it's normally found in sandy sea floors and along rocky coastlines, it's also found in this submarine canyon. And based on what I read, this is the only place where it's really found in a deep sea canyon like this because there's not a whole lot of others along its range. But I could be wrong. It may be just that nobody's really explored these other submarine canyons along the Pacific coast, and maybe they're found elsewhere. But for the moment, I could only find evidence of it living in the Monterey Bay submarine canyon and nowhere else. Their diet is primarily shellfish. So that's going to be crabs, shrimp, and krill, uh, bivalves like mussels and clams, as well as animals like snails. So a few relatives. <laughs> Um, but they have also been known to eat fish. They reproduce sexually between males and females. Uh, the males have a special arm called the hectocotylus, and this is how they pass spermatophores, spermatophores, spermatophores to females so that they can use those to fertilize their eggs. Females may lay upwards of twenty to 50,000 tiny eggs that are about three to four millimeters in length, which is less than a quarter of an inch. So those are some tiny babies uh, coming out of those. And their lifespan is generally one to two years long. That may sound short, but honestly, cephalopods typically have very, very, very short lives. They might live six months. There are some species like the giant Pacific octopus that live three to five years. And that's the longest lifespan we know of is three to five years. There may be evidence of other animals living longer. There's a lot we don't know about the ocean, 
But as far as we're concerned right now, very short-lived animals. So one to two years is actually pretty like standard. All right, now that we got that natural history out of the way, we're going to move into their environmental value. And this is essentially things like ecosystem roles. This tiny octopus plays the dual role of being predator and prey in its ecosystem, which is relatively common of a role for octopuses. They usually keep shellfish populations in check while also feeding other larger predators. In the case of the red octopus, they're going to be eaten by larger fish species, sharks, dolphins, sea otters, and pinnipeds. And for pinnipeds within their range, it's going to be things like harbor seals, California sea lions, and I think northern fur seals also eat them as well. I have personally witnessed a southern sea uh, otter eating a red octopus uh, when I was living in Monterey Bay at the Fisherman's Wharf. I'll have to see if I can dredge up that picture and post it. Technically, I don't know if it was a red octopus. It could have been a tiny giant Pacific octopus, but based on where the pictures were taken, it was most likely a red octopus. Just make it throwing out that disclaimer. I always call it a red octopus. I technically can't know because I wasn't that close up and the picture doesn't really show whether or not it has the three eye flaps. So anyway, moving on. That short lifespan that they have and the very high fecundity they have, fecundity being their ability to produce a lot of young, so that 20 to 50,000 eggs, is a hallmark of cephalopods and it may also play a role in maintaining our climate as well. So the ocean is considered a carbon sink. A carbon sink is something that absorbs a lot of CO2 or carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. In this case, the ocean absorbs nearly one third of the carbon dioxide that goes into our atmosphere. Carbon sequestration is a process where carbon is removed from the natural cycles and stored in a solid or liquid form. So when we dig for oil, oil is sequestered carbon. It has been removed from the atmosphere and from other forms of the environment and stored in a liquid form in the earth not to be involved in those natural cycles. Uh, an example in animals is things like snails. When snails form their shells, which are made of calcium carbonate, they are sequestering... <laughs> They are sequestering carbon in their shells from the ocean, which has absorbed it from the atmosphere. So the ocean absorbs carbon. Carbon becomes available to sea life, and sea life uses it and stores it away, and that removes it from the cycle that it goes through where it can re-enter the atmosphere. And this is very important because as we are currently experiencing, too much CO2 in our atmosphere leads to changes in our climate that can be devastating. So animals that perform carbon sequestration are very important. Now in octopuses, they don't directly sequester carbon the way many shellfish do like snails or crabs. Aside from their beaks and one type of octopus, the argonauts, which create unique egg cases, uh, they don't do primary carbon sequestration, but what they do is they support other animals that do carbon sequestration. So because they have these very short lives, they produce a lot of those eggs. And there are many carbon sequestering species that will opportunistically feed on the eggs of cephalopods because those 20 to 50,000 eggs are not going to hatch. Many of them will be consumed before they hatch. 
on average, um, what is it? There's there's a model where like for animals that lay, you know, thousands to millions of eggs, generally about 10% might hatch and then only 1% will sur- potentially survive to adulthood or less than 1%. So that being said, they're laying 20 to 50,000 eggs and they're very abundant throughout their habitats or throughout their ranges that means that they're feeding a lot of animals. And because their eggs are super tiny, it's not like big things are eating it. Generally, it's going to be very small organisms that are eating it. And of course, when they die, their bodies are also scavenged by carbon sequestering species. And so when I say carbon sequestering species, I'm talking about animals like crabs, snails, sea urchins, worms, and sea stars. These are all animals that would opportunistically uh, feed on those eggs as well as scavenge the bodies of the octopuses after they die. So, you know, like I said, they're not directly doing carbon sequestration, but their existence helps to support animals that are primary carbon sequestering organisms. Hopefully that makes sense. I'm sorry if it didn't If I didn't explain that well, feel free to call me out. I will try to come back to that later. I definitely should talk a little bit more about some natural cycles because I want to be able to talk about them more, but I also want to make sure that I'm not confusing people. So I should definitely set aside some episodes to talk about these things. Moving on to the social value. This one's a little tricky because octopuses in general tend to have a lot of social value. But <laughs> typically, a lot of what's displayed are larger, showier, showier species that, you know, get a lot more love from people. And often it's very generic. It's not like people always target a specific species when we're incorporating them into things like artwork or other things like that. It's, it's usually just octopus, generic octopus, <laughs> which makes it very tricky to find red octopuses as a specific example. But let's go ahead and talk about them a bit anyway. So red octopuses can actually be seen in quite a few North American aquariums. But giant Pacific octopuses, which I'm going to start referring to as GPOs, which is what we refer to them in aquariums anyway, (laughs) just to save me some breath. GPOs tend to be much more common in aquariums because, I mean, one, they're the largest known species of octopus in the world. It's, it's, a pretty big brag. And also, you know, they're big, so they're much easier to find. They are landed pretty often as accidental bycatch, and then fishermen may sell or donate them to aquariums. And that's not to say red octopuses aren't. Red octopuses actually are caught in uh, pond, (laughs) prawn traps, but they are very small animals. And There's an appeal with larger octopuses because most octopuses are nocturnal and they usually rest anywhere from 16 to 18 hours a day. And usually during that rest period, they're hiding in crevices and dark places. So taking those natural behaviors into consideration, GPOs are much more ideal for displaying in aquaria because when they're resting, sometimes they're still so large that they remain visible to guests, even if they're not being active compared to the much tinier 20-inch red octopus, which when it decides it doesn't want to be seen, it's small enough that it can just vanish. Most of them that I know of are kept in relatively small tanks, but there's two reasons for that. One is, you know, hopefully they're easier to display if they have less space to hide. But also, 
octopuses tend to live their entire lives in caves and they only leave the caves to go get food. If food is nearby, they will just snatch it up and stay in their cave. That's what they do. They like to be able to hide in small spaces. So it is important to not give them too much space because it can actually, it's less stressful for them to be in a small enclosed space than it is for them to be in bigger spaces. Bigger spaces, especially mixed exhibits, means that they have to potentially live in fear of other animals. Although in other cases, <laughs> other animals may live in fear of the octopus. I'm sure a lot of people have heard plenty of stories about the things octopuses do in public aquaria, but there is a really cool story about the red octopus from the Monterey Bay Aquarium. When I'll just say this. If you ever get the chance to volunteer at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, everybody will tell you the story about the octopus that got into the aquarium. And I do mean that. It got in. It was not meant to be there. <laughs> Ate a bunch of crustaceans and then tried to escape. So basically, with a lot of aquariums, uh, most aquariums are closed systems, which means they pump in water from municipal sources, clean it, add the salt and minerals themselves that need to go into the water, and basically create their own ocean water. When you live on a system like like that, there's generally not a whole lot of unwanted hitchhikers. However, for some coastal aquariums, they have open systems, which means they actually draw in raw seawater. Now, during the day, most of them filter the water so that it's a little bit clearer and people can see the animals. But then some facilities like the Monterey Bay Aquarium at night actually drop those filters and just let the raw seawater come in. I've personally seen this where the water gets a little bit cloudier in the evening. It's really cool. This also means that a lot of microorganisms and eggs can hitchhike into the aquarium. So this tiny red octopus managed to hitchhike into the aquarium. And I believe the particular exhibit it lived in, if, you, if you've ever been to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, in the Monterey Bay habitats, there is a little pool. It used to be a sea anemone touch pool. Instead, it has floating microscopes on top of it, and you can move the microscopes around and look at the, the sea anemones, the little shrimp, and the nudibranchs and things that live in this tiny exhibit. Well, that's where this red octopus ended up. And the aquarist noticed that the crustaceans were disappearing. The little shrimp and crabs and things that normally lived in there were vanishing. And then one night, as security is, was walking through, and this is how it was told to me, I don't know the precise story because I'm sure the story was told like 18 different times before it got to me. A little bit of uh, aquarium telephone there. And it may have happened slightly differently. But the way I was told was when security found it, they suspected it might have been something like a discarded banana peel or something on the floor. And then when they got closer and inspected it, they realized it was a freaking octopus. <laughs> and so that, that kind of like solved the mystery of why all these crustaceans were going missing. Now, while I was originally told that it was put in the kelp forest exhibit, I think later on somebody said technically it was actually re-released back into Monterey Bay. And I think that's actually what I read on their website when I tried to find the story too. And I'm pretty sure if you go to their website, that's what they have um, listed on their Red Octopus page is they actually mentioned the story. And I'm pretty sure at the end they said that it was released. So anyway. I'm not trying to sidetrack too much into that, but, you know, everybody tells octopus escape stories and whatnot. That one I found actually very interesting was it wasn't a matter of they brought it in intentionally and it tried to escape. This thing 
unintentionally ended up in the aquarium because of how its system is designed and was trying to escape and find a new source of food. I thought that was hysterical when I first heard the story. Moving on. Octopuses are also frequently featured in various forms of art. Literature, film, murals, sculptures, clothing, shoes, just all kinds of things. Many of these things are labeled red octopus, but they're simply just octopuses that happen to be red. And very often when I look at a lot of it, it's very often modeled more after what I would consider a GPO and not quite the red octopus. Actually, here in Maryland, we have a tattoo shop called the Red Octopus, though I cannot attest to whether or not it was named for the species. And no, none of my tattoos have come from there yet. But I have been tattooed by one of the artists that are at Red Octopus, just not when he was at Red Octopus. Regardless, octopuses on the whole have really inspired a lot of creative and spiritual heritage in coastal cultures around the world for thousands of years. There's Minoan frescoes, there's mosaics in Pompeii, there's paintings in Japan, there's deities and natural spirits in many of the indigenous cultures spread throughout the Polynesian islands. Octopuses have just made their way into so much of human culture, even non-coastal cultures. It's incredible. And with that being said, I'm going to cover one cultural icon, at least a modern one, and that's Hank from Finding Dory. The reason why I'm bringing him up is because when I was doing some searching for octopuses in pop culture, something I read said that he was based off of a red octopus. And when I looked at some of the Disney pages, it says red Pacific octopus, which is a little confusing. The common names are typically East Pacific red octopus or just red octopus. And then there's the giant Pacific octopus, but that's not what they called him. Now, even though some seem to say that he's based off the red octopus, looking at his size, I'm pretty sure he's based off a of GPO. GPOs are massive. And if you're thinking about this small 20-inch octopus, and then you think of the size of the blue tang or palette sturgeon, surgeon fish, uh, which is what D Dory is, that octopus could maybe be twice Dory's size, but not that much bigger. Hank was definitely like 30 times <laughs> Dory's size. Hank was probably a GPO, but let's let's discuss him a little bit while we're here. In the movie, his whole story is he has seven instead of eight arms. Now, there are a couple of possibilities where that's something that can happen in real life. It's not just, you know, Hank, it's this happens. And there are a few reasons why. Obviously, octopuses can lose their arms in a variety of ways in the wild, such as predation. And when they do lose those arms, they are actually capable of regrowing a new arm, though it's typically going to be a little shorter and stubbier than the original. It won't be a great looking arm. You can usually tell if an octopus has had to regrow an arm. So Hank could have arguably been at the beginning stages of regenerating his lost arm. Males also sometimes sacrifice their hectocodilus arms to a female in order to fertilize the eggs. This is commonly seen in Argonaut octopuses, but other species do it too. Though most male octopuses die shortly after mating, <laughs> so it seems a bit unlikely that this was Hank's scenario. And finally, there's actually the possibility that he was a species known as the seven-armed octopus, 
And they are called seven-armed octopuses because of the males, because the males look like they have, quote-unquote, seven arms. This is because their hectolotilus arm is super tiny. What did I just say? Hectolotilus? That was awful. Hectocotylus arm. <laughs> the hectocotylus arm is super tiny. And it's coiled under their right eye. So it gives the impression that they only have seven arms. Now, the seven-armed octopus is very close in size to the GPO. While the GPO is currently considered the largest octopus species, the seven-armed octopus actually challenges that. They can turn the same bold red color that GPOs can, and they can be found in the deeper waters off the California coast, so they share the same range as GPOs. So, arguably, Hank may have been, or at least Disney could have said that Hank was, a seven-armed octopus, but... I have a feeling that because it was a public aquarium and because GPOs are so common in public aquariums, that's most likely what they tried to model him after. But whatever. If you have a chance, speaking of seven-arm octopuses, Mbari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, actually has a really cool video of a seven-arm octopus holding on to an egg yolk jellyfish, potentially to use its stingers for its own defense and probably to munch on later. The family, the super family that seven-armed octopuses are part of, the Argonautidae, are some absolutely wild octopuses with some really cool adaptations. If you wanted to do any, like, fun research, I highly recommend checking out that family of octopuses. Anyway, we've been in a, we've, we've hung out under social value long enough. Let's go ahead and take a look at some of their economic value. Since these octopuses do not have any fisheries and they are not targeted for sports fishing usually, most of their economic value comes from public aquariums and diving activities. As a Pacific species, most of the aquariums that exhibit red octopuses are found along the Pacific coast. In particular, there are ones like the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Seattle Aquarium, Oregon Aquarium, and the Aquarium of the Pacific uh, are ones that sometimes have red octopuses on display. While they may not be as large as GPOs, they are nonetheless a very attractive species. And I'll have to see if I can dredge up some of the pictures I have of one. In particular, my favorite thing when I look at a red octopus exhibit is I'm really excited if it's a female. Because when they lay their eggs, their eggs are so cute, they lay them in these cute little strands. And they look like tiny pearls. So it looks like they're just creating this beautiful little pearl necklace. And there was one time where instead of making it vertical, I once saw a red octopus female make it sort sort of like it was it was somewhat diagonal but it was mostly horizontal and it it almost kind of like arced a little bit so it literally looked like a little pearl necklace and she laid it along the window it was so freaking adorable i loved her and of course unfortunately after she laid her egg she passed away shortly afterwards that's the hardest part is if you ever go to an aquarium and you see an octopus with eggs you really got to give her some love in that moment because you know for a fact those are you know, her final days. There are some rare exceptions. I went to the Greensboro Science Center two years ago, I think it was. Maybe it was less. And if there's anybody who is staffed there who knows what I'm talking about, please feel free to say hi because I was so stoked when I saw this. They had this absolutely massive female because in most octopus species, the females will be larger. As I mean, this is super common in invertebrates is females are larger. There are exceptions, but in GPOs, the females are huge. This female was the largest octopus I'd ever seen. She was massive. She was 
oh my gosh, I can't, I'm trying to think of how to contextualize her size so that people could understand. Like if you've seen GPOs and aquariums, if you get used to seeing them, you get used to kind of a certain size so that every once in a while when there's a giant one, it really stands out. And I've only seen two giant GPOs. One was at the Monterey Bay Aquarium and it, it, it was massive, but I think, I think the one I saw at Greensboro Science Center was bigger and she had laid her eggs and GPOs lay tens of thousands of eggs, of course. If you think that the 20 to 50,000 eggs that the red octopus lays was a lot, imagine the, you know, 100,000 plus that uh, the GPO lays. It's amazing. And she had, she had, she had covered like a huge chunk of her exhibit up in the corner in her eggs. And what was amazing was in aquariums, when we see this with GPOs, I mean, there may be a few weeks before we lose an octopus at the most, but when I went, I think they said that she was going on months since she had laid those eggs and she wasn't eating, which is very common. They stop eating when they lay their eggs. And she just sat there for months with her eggs, just this giant, monstrous sized animal. It was incredible. I'm really tr racking my brains right now trying to think of a si the size of something that most people would be familiar with to give them an idea of how huge she was. I'm talking just her mantle size too. I can't even imagine how long her arms stretched. <laughs> but her her mantle, which is, you know, that big head part was just, oh man, it was so big. I, I guess the closest I can think of was, if you think of the size of like your typical like bulldog, she was like her mantle size was close to that. She was just huge. I mean, you could have stuck corgi in her mantle and probably still had space. <laughs> she was she was just a big girl. It was incredible. She was massive. I couldn't believe it. Maybe I'm exaggerating the size. Maybe I'm just remembering her bigger just because I have such an impression. I'll have to dig up her pictures and post those too now that I'm talking about her. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting off track because we're no longer talking about red, red octopuses. But, you know, Octopuses in general are super appealing. A, a facility, whether it's an aquarium or a nature center, zoo, whatever, if they have octopuses, a lot of people will try to visit places that have octopuses. So they're a very big drive. And major aquariums like the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Seattle Aquarium, Oregon Aquarium, so on, these are facilities that make millions of dollars a year. And in most cases, they are, of course, paying taxes, they're funding local projects, whether it's conservation or education. Sometimes they're also funding national and international projects for conservation and education. So the money that these facilities make really gets driven back into a lot of local, national, even international communities in some cases due to the conservation and education work that they do. So obviously the octopuses aren't the sole reason why they make all this money, but they are a big drive for why some people visit aquariums and see cool animals like octopuses and sharks and so on. Another big drive is diving activities. So that's usually diving and snorkeling. And I can, I can tell you from the divers and snorkelers that I know would be extremely excited to find red octopuses or any octopus really during their time in the water and even just tide pooling too. And in the state of California, California, I think, is like the third major state for diving behind, I believe it's Hawaii and Florida. And roughly like somewhere between 850 
to 900,000 people a year participate in different diving activities, and they can help generate anywhere from 200 to $500 million a year in that industry. And again, octopuses aren't the sole carriers of this, <laughs> of this thing. Of course, sharks and other fish and things are very attractive. But I can tell you that most, if not all people who are getting in the water and diving and snorkeling would be ecstatic to find an octopus because they can be such cryptic creatures that love to hide and stay out of the way, basically. So that wraps up our different values. Let's go ahead and look at their conservation. So the red octopus, I believe, I mean, I couldn't find any current assessment by the IUCN. I did read on Seabase that there was an IUN assessment, I think from, it was either like 2015 or 2011, but it put them as least concern. And in general, most places that talk about them will not discuss them as if they are threatened or endangered. They're relatively abundant throughout their range, like I said before, though there is some evidence that they are declining in some areas, though, and it's largely due to human encroachment. One of the big threats for red octopuses is the harm that fisheries can do to both them and their habitats. So certain forms of fishing, especially things like trawling, there are certain types of trawling that can be extremely invasive by fisheries because, so if you don't know what trawling is, it very often involves uh, implements that come down to the seafloor and kind of like scoop things up. And sometimes it's it's anchored on the bottom with hooks and there's a net that gathers things. I'm not going to go into all the different forms of trawling, but it if you can just envision like heavy, sharp implements going down into the seafloor and then just like scraping through the sand, which is a place where these animals can hide. It can be very stressful. It can hurt the animals. It can sometimes even kill the animals that are dwelling in the sand, which would include the octopuses. And I also mentioned earlier that they are sometimes accidentally caught as bycatch in prawn traps. So in order to help reduce the impact of fisheries on red octopuses, one of the best things that people can do is to either choose more sustainable seafood options, which means that in the case of sustainable fisheries, there's a lot of things taken into account. And one of them is how food is caught, which would mean avoiding certain forms of bottom trawling that is extremely damaging to the seafloor. Another option is you can simply abstain from seafood, especially if you can't find sustainable options or it's very obvious that the, that the seafood that you're looking at was harvested using unsustainable techniques. Now, you don't have to sit here and do a ton of research. There are certain things that can help you out. There are certifications and programs that exist to help people make better seafood choices. The most common certification seen on seafood in the U.S. is the Marine Stewardship Council seal, which is for wild-caught seafood, and the Aquaculture Stewardship Council seal, which is for farm seafood. There are also certifications that will have labels like Fair Trade or the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. The Monterey Bay Aquarium has their Seafood Watch program, which you can also download as an app on your phone. And it has a very easy and intuitive rating system to help people find the best choices for sustainable seafood. And on the app, it also rates restaurants. So if a restaurant offers sustainable seafood, they will actually tell you that. Worst case scenario if you cannot find any sustainable seafood labels 
or the recommendations in your areas just don't have anything really good, then the best option is to buy and eat local seafood from small fisheries run by either local companies or small family businesses, as they typically have a much smaller impact on local habitats than a larger commercial fishery would. All right, so that's a wrap for this episode about the red octopus and for our very first episode covering the sandy seafloor. Thank you so much for listening. For this episode, I cited information from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, Ambari, uh, the Seattle Aquarium, the Sanctuary Integrated Monitoring Network, and a 2011 paper called Prey Selection in Octopus Rubescence, Possible Roles of Energy Budgeting and Prey Nutritional Composition. My God, that's a mouthful. And the paper was by Kurt Onthank and David Cowles. I'm sorry if I said your names wrong. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com. You can also check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm on social media. You can find the natural... Slow down, Kristen. You can find The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. You can help spread the word of the podcast by leaving me reviews on Apple Podcasts and podchaser.com. If you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, you can check out some of these other wildlife podcasts. There's All Creatures Podcast, CritterCast, The Wildlife, Just the Zoo of Us, Animals to the Max, Varmints, Amazing Wildlife Podcast, The Casual Birder, What Are You Podcast, The Songbirding Podcast, the Cicada Lounge, and Strange Animals Podcast. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. that Those are so many. Oh, and um, Life, Death, and Taxonomy. I really need to add them to this list. They are an excellent podcast. And all of those podcasts are safe for work. Then there's also Keeper Chat, which is a phenomenal podcast, but it is definitely not safe for work. There are also some really great podcasts you can check out that are about other sciences or science in general and may or may not have some crossover with wildlife. There's Petri Dish, Planthropology, Bald Scientist, Dear Grad Student, Better Than Human, Curiosity Cake, Mad Scientist, What Are You Going to Do With That, Papa PhD, Breaking Math, Curiosity Killed the Rat, That's What I Call Science, and the Scientist podcast, and that's with two T's at the end of Scientist. Many of these podcasts that I just listed were actually the ones that I did that collaborative episode with. So you can actually kind of get an idea of some of these podcasts by listening to that collaborative episode and hearing them, well, all of us talk about our podcasts. Some of these podcasts are and aren't safe for work, Petri dish. So be sure to double check if that's a concern of yours. I am also on a non-wildlife podcast called The Legend of Porto I'm also on a non-wildlife podcast called Legend of Portal Cast, which discusses the world of Avatar the Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Anyway, I will be back next week with another species from the sandy seafloor of Monterey Bay's continental shelf.